Hi, I'm Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and this is The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much or more than the buildings themselves. In this episode, we feature a roundtable discussion on the role of design in creating social value. Can the design of a place make people happier or healthier, enhance social cohesion, make employment opportunities happen? Can we translate that into actual economic value, into pounds on a spreadsheet? And is it right to give everything a price? We've put together a mix of professionals to wrestle with these issues. They include Matt Wilgar of Hadley Property Group, Hazel York from Hawkins Brown, Natasha McIntyre-Hall from Portsmouth City Council, Blossom Young from Poplar Harka, May Molteno from Trilogy, Michael Rebill from Hawkins Brown, Honey Salee from the Quality of Life Foundation, and Annabelle Precious from Civic Engineers. The conversation takes place in person in London, and this roundtable and episode is supported by Hawkins Brown, an architecture and urban design practice with offices in London, Manchester, Edinburgh, Dublin, and Los Angeles. The occasion is the publication of their report, Delivering Social Value, the result of a year-long research project in which they revisited completed projects and applied a range of socio-economic metrics to understand the social impact of their work across housing, education, civic, and commercial environments. And if you want to read the report, it's available to download on the Hawkins Brown website. Now, let's tune in. Welcome and thank you for being here at this roundtable discussion about social value and how the design of a project can contribute meaningfully to social value. Um, We're going to kick off. Uh, Michael is going to speak a little bit about the report that Hawkins Brown has uh, written around delivering social value and kind of give you an overview of some of their thoughts to set some context for the conversation we're going to have today. So I'm going to pass to you now. Okay. So um, my name is Mike Riebel, I'm a researcher at Hawkins Brown and um, my background is in architecture and sociology and I guess that makes me perfect to, uh, to, to, to um, uh, write about that task. Um, this report is um, something we actually did not really intend to write in the first place, it was more coming to terms with social value, um, the term social value, especially after the Social Value Act. and um, it's more like an extended post-occupancy evaluation showcase. So it's both. So on the one hand side, we test sort of social value methodology on some of the projects we've done. On the other hand, we sort of then went back and started systematically thinking about what social value is. And I have to admit, it was done selfishly from the perspective of the architect, because most of the frameworks you read are more broadly obviously have to be, but in that case, you say, okay, what do we architects think about that subject and how can we address it? Now, um, if you want to open the report, it, um, and I want to show you a few graphics, and along those graphics, I kind of want to explain what we mean by social value. We're not going to, as I said, we're not going to define what social value is. For us, social value, uh, for me personally, as a sociologist, social value is uh, an, another incarnation of what I would call the social narrative. We have social um, impact, we have social capital, all sorts of terms. What we, talk, what we talk about is, I would always refer to the social narrative in the shape of social value. Um, and if you look at page 8 at the bottom, 
there's a little graphic, and um, for me, there was when we started. For me, it was a sort of um, a, a process. Of how 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 do I? What type of social values do we have? And you see that we have defined four. And on the left-hand side, we something we call in-house social value, and that is uh, what we do as a company. Uh, what we help employees feel better it's for employee well-being, etc. That's very easy to define. On the right-hand side is process social value. That's um, social value which we create during the delivery of a project. That can be apprenticeships, that can be internships, that can be locally sourced material. Um, this what we could call a one-off social value. So value that is generated during the delivery process and comes and goes. Um, and then in the middle there is this um, slightly blurred two categories, which we call embodied and by design. And that's um, where it gets a bit complicated. It's not really complicated, but it's complicated to separate those two. With embodied, um, I mean, I think in the most sort of social value metrics we call this dead weight, we call it embodied is um, if you look, for example, at a school or like a library, um, that creates social value by default, every library, no matter how it is shaped, because it provides books for the community, people go there, get informed and so forth. Now by design means, okay, how can you make this library better? And that's where actually the architect comes in. And it's drawn as a sort of, um, uh, two categories sort of that blur into each other on a sliding scale, because it's really, really difficult to to tease that out, and the current sort of metrics don't really help with that. That's one of the criticisms we have that if you really boil down, there is no such thing as a design metric. Um, and so these were um, the four categories, and we went tested them on our projects. But before we go to the project, I just want to have you look at the uh, sort of another sort of the big diagram in the middle of the report. That's one here, or blue. And sorry, it's a bit um, the middle character is this bit, but I think the the, the diagram is, is easily to to see. So that's um, social value creation mapped on um, across the um, um, sort of the life cycle of a of a um, architecture project, which um, follows the RIBA stages. Starts with the brief, then we design it, then we build it, and then uh, it's being used and monitored and ideally um, uh, produces um, social wealth. Um, so um, uh, that's how we create, because social value, if you say accumulated social value, will be then social wealth. Um, and so you have this middle sort of, sort of stream of delivery. And that's what we call, that's where the embodied social value is. As architects, and I said this is the perspective of the architect, as architects, when somebody um, tasks us to build a library, um, it's not really our sort of merit that we came up, okay, build a library, then somebody else tasks the brief. But then you see on top of that a sort of big stream of delivery, which we at Hawkins Pond do very well, we think. And, um, but there is this, this, this um, layer of possible improvements and that runs parallel. And that is what we call social value by design. And, there's a lot of things you can do. You have collaborative design process where you really, really work closely with the users and, and get their input and make things better. You do targeted research. And um, it's a continued sort of process, but it needs to be very conscious process to say, okay, we want 
this outcome. And that's why it is so important that at brief stage we do social value targets and research. And because I followed um, in that diagram the sort of RBA plan of work, it's linear, but in reality this is circular. And you see how the sort of um, um, <coughs> arrows um, from sort of the end bit go back. So actually this should be a circular diagram. And that's one of the other sort of things which we wanted to state with the report is that social value is a circular process. So um, uh, in, in German, we always say after uh, when a football game is finished, we say after the game is before the game. Um, um, we can say this to projects, well, after the project is before the project, because every project m should make another project better. That's easily said, but it's actually not that much done in reality. Social value is a good vehicle to do it because you are forced to learn. Um, about the outcomes, but uh, post-occupancy evaluation is by no means uh, a standard in the construction industry, and that's um, that should. I mean, that's one of the messages of the report. It also should be improved. Now, looking at how this then plays out, I wanted to give two examples. If we um, see, go to the library. That's the easiest example. If we go to um, the first sort of case study on page 17. So this is the case study, it's Corby. It's a library, but it's not only a library, it's a town hall actually. It's not only a town hall, it's a, um, um, a theatre venue. It's not only a theatre venue, it's a community centre, it's everything. It's a Swiss knife, as we say, it's a Swiss knife building that does everything. And the reason why it does everything is because we suggested it. And it's not really easy to t twist so many um, different programs into one large building. If you turn around, this is the building here. You can show this big cube. And that has, um, I don't know, 10 to 12 users inside. It's complex, 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 but it's also a difficult building to get off the ground. But um, in this case, we're looking just at the detail, which is the library. And on page 17, you see this image. And this image shows a ramp with shelves on the right-hand side and on the left-hand side. And this ramp um, is, um, we spoke with the library manager and when she came into the say, okay, this is your library, said, well, oh, well, that is different. Um, and she said, is this my library? And uh, is it not like just a corridor? No, no, it's your library. And, um, and um, so they made it work because this is a corridor and a library. So you go up the ramp and end up at council service. So if you drove a bit too fast and have to pay a fine and you pay this locally, not over the internet, um, then you have to go up um, um, the ramp. Or if you uh, want to get married, you have to go up the ramp. There's a lot of services that are combined in this building where you have to pass the library. And the sort of collateral benefit of that is that more people go into the library. And if you look on top of this, there's a little graph with a massive blue sort of um, 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 bit which shows how, how uh, the, the growth of visitor numbers of uh, Corby Library. And if you then look at the other libraries in Northamptonshire, you see that in average their visitor numbers has been decreasing. So this is one of the few libraries where actually more visitors come. And um, so we spoke also with the librarian and it's actually due that people come in the library by sort of accident. 
And to make the point, uh, we l asked as well how many people actually take out books. And there's another little figure which is so 60 to 1, which is means only one of 60 visitors actually um, um, uh, lends a book. And you think this is not good for a library, but actually it's a really positive figure because it means people go casually inside, stay there, linger, take books out, and then go and pay their fine. Uh, fine. Um, so in that sense, we could claim as architects by sort of combining these two use in a very innovative way, we increase the visit numbers and then you can use social, um, social value metrics. Now we come to the metrics and says, okay, there is a social value metric of being well informed and that's something you can calculate. I'm not going to go to the details in the report. We got help by Regeneris who helped us with those calculations. You come up with this um, figure of 885,000 pound per year in well-being, which is not a real figure, it's more a benchmark figure. <coughs> can discuss this uh, a bit more in the discussion, but, um, but what it shows is that this contributes to sort of the well-being massively. The last sort of um, example from the report, which I want to show where it gets, this is uh, actually the nicest, the best example, it's a bit easier. Uh, if we go to page um, 24, that is. This is a school building. Show this. In, um, in Putney, Ark Putney, Dakini. Grade two listed, very beautiful building. We restored it, um, amazing project. But really zooming again into the detail is um, we changed in the school, we changed um, um, the circulation quite a lot. And we made the space, we created the social spaces in the circulation and made it nicer and area and sort of decluttered it. And if you look at the two graphs on top, it shows you that after the, after the uh, construction was sort of, com after school was completed, the lower graph shows that um, the absence figures of students fell under the national average, um, which means our people, our students like to come to school. And that's a very, very important figure. It's actually almost more important um, than sort of attainment, because it means um, it's a student, um, a students identify uh, the school as a, as a comfortable place to be, which has a lot of knock-on effects on attainment, on uh, teacher uh, satisfaction and so forth. Now that, you can't really, you don't really find, find well-being um, sort of um, metrics for that. You can say, um, okay, it, it has a it has certain sort of monitoring impact, but what it has it shows that um, it's better attainment figures, you can get better staff retainment as well. Now, you can say that was the, the sort of the, the result of the architect, but you can also say, well, maybe they hired better teachers. It gets a bit blurry there. We can clearly say that we took part in it, but it was not our sole responsibility. And so the bottom line of this is that um, it would be it would be really handy as an architect as well as to sort of 
to have a framework that looks at these design moves and does research on what actually does, for example, we give, Hazel gave the example in the forward, what, for example, does a four square meter utility space yield? Can't really calculate this in terms of well-being, or what does a larger corridor in a school yield in terms of social impact with whatever metric calculated? Um, and that would be um, 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 uh, a massive sort of research project, but I think this would be valuable to do, because in the end of the day, um, these are long-term measures. If we, the ramp stays long, the school stays long, if we start them now, it, they play out over 30, 40 years. It's really hard to calculate. A lot of the social value discussion we have is, is really governed by um, apprenticeships, internships, um, um, things that be, are tangible, that are short-term gains, maybe, I would say, on the, on the Excel sheet, but these sort of complicated measures of design is, um, or messy sort of, sort of areas are a bit underdeveloped. That's having said this, there has been a lot of made in the last, and, uh, in the last years in, in, in the field of social value. And by that, I think I'll stop. Thank you very much. I think um, that's provided a really nice framework for the discussion where we're talking about some of these um, design interventions and then that idea of quantifying the value. I'm going to now kind of go around to each of you and ask you to maybe contribute your own uh, professional experience and thoughts around social value and it, its contribution, how that's coming into your work and your thinking at the moment. Um, so actually, uh, Blossom, do you want to, to kick off and introduce your yourself and also um, your your connections to social value and and to design in general and its value. Um, sure, thanks, Christine. So I'm uh, Blossom Young. I'm from Poplar Harker, and I uh, co-lead a team called Accents, which is really focused on the broad-based regeneration of of the place. Um, we only work within a square mile, so we work in a tiny part of East London, which is uh, undergoing masses of development. And and I guess the real challenge for us and our, our team is as as a kind of uh, we're a housing association, so as a a long-term custodian of of the place, we're as interested actually in the in the place as it is shaped, the residents who are already here and existing, um, the new residents who are moving in, and and really how uh, a genuinely mixed community can emerge in. Uh, in the future. And so uh, we've got a couple of re estate regeneration schemes at the moment, and I think crucial for us in that development process and in thinking about that design process is almost how do we kind of bake in those longer term um, place elements and how do we kind of use that to provide a platform for um, communities to to thrive, and that's of course that's about beautiful housing, um, but it's also about the landscaping, and it's also about jobs, and about enterprise, and about community facilities and and health. And I think um, so much of the work that we're engaged in is is actually about how do you create a confidence in the community now, so that when you have an incoming 
community. Uh, there's there's a confidence and structure, civic structures for people to buy into, and I think design plays an incredibly important role in generating that. I think that's through working with community groups as as they are. Um, so that's very much about co-design, but it's also thinking through the longer term. You know, who maintains those parks and that landscape when it's created? Is there capacity in the community to deliver that? Um, where are the local businesses who are creating the thriving high street? Um, yeah, so I think that's that's very much where we're coming from, that sense of a place not being created. There's already a, a place. It's being shaped and it's being transformed, but one which is creating opportunities for existing and new. Amazing. Thank you so much. I think, um, I mean, Matt, you're coming from a different perspective. Uh, in in as a developer and it'd be good to, you know to talk about you know picking off from what um blossom's talking about that long-term custodian of place and developers are often associated with being shorter term custodians of places but over to you yep hi uh, matt wargar from hadley property group we're a property developer based in central london uh, operating primarily within uh, london in the southeast um, my role as uh, a project director at Hadley is uh, you know, commenting, influencing on acquisitions, uh, running right the way through um, planning, consultation, design, uh, all the way through into procurement and construction of the projects. Um, social value clearly sort of has, has woven itself into every single part of that process. I think there are many things that we have always done. Um, that reflect directly to, to, to talk directly to social value, uh, but I think we're really developing a language now uh, to comment, comment on it as a distinct topic, uh, and I think that's really interesting. It, it gives us a framework to discuss it. It helps us develop the language to discuss it, and probably set some benchmarks to help improve the way that we influence design, influence the process, uh, and improve our, our consul consultation processes as well as picking up later on in the process, how does that translate into procurement? How does that translate into uh, which partners you select? How does that translate into um, how you interact with your construction partners? How do you monitor your construction partners and, and what they're doing on site? How do you maintain that process? Although, as you say, Christine, it is a, it is a, a more short-term view when you're looking at a, a development of 12 to 18 months through a planning process with maybe two, three, four years of the construction process. It's not 15, 20 years. Um, it is a, a long period of time. How, how do you sort of maintain that project brief that you might have right at inception uh, and ensure that those uh, principles, that the pillars that you've set out um, on social value right at the start are still being maintained by your contractor six weeks before practical completion? That's a really strong point and it is a kind of speaks to that fragmentation in the industry and how do you have set that overarching vision and then uh, kind of links into Michael's point about you know these benchmarks and attaining them and measuring them and ensuring they deliver which brings us to to you Hani actually because I mean, one of the things you're working on are our metrics and measurements um, and there are a few uh, different frameworks kind of in play different people coming up with different ways to to connect into the topic but um, please introduce yourself and some of the work that you're doing Sure, yeah. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Hani Saleh. Uh, I'm from the Quality of Life Foundation. Um, currently I'm working as a research and engagement assistant over there. Um, and yeah, Christine, like you were saying, I think what, what we do with the Quality of Life Foundation is kind of based on this framework that we've developed over the course of the last two years, as it were, um, mostly looking at uh, primarily focusing on health and well-being as a 
central aspect of how we approach sort of uh, thinking about uh, evaluating the quality of housing, quality of life, as it were. Um, again, the names. We like to do things with the, where the name is exactly as it says on the tin. Um, so, yeah, I, I think conversations about social value are interesting to us because we feel like they're, they're and this is something that I think is going to be echoed around the table, but we feel like some, sometimes the picture is slightly incomplete. And so for us, what, what, what we see is an opportunity to bring in health and well-being as a, as a way to kind of round that off. And we do that by looking really closely at local connections, local people, and how they respond to their environments. So primarily, that comes in the form of our post-occupancy post evaluation surveys that we do. These are sort of programs where we um, run these surveys, speak to local, uh, local people who live in the area, get their reflections on what it's like to live in the area. Um, because for us, I think that's the best way to be informed about what it is to be in that space and what it, is, what it means to actually just, you know, to be in that space day in, day out. You know, sometimes the process is, yes, you deliver, you deliver the housing units, but what does it mean to live there? after the two-year mark, after the four-year mark. And that's something that we're work, working on trying to develop our own kind of approach to as well with, with, with developers and with also with local communities as well. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think, it, it, you know, what we try to do is we try to look at it as a, as a regional, as a variety of scales. So there's the, the national, the regional, and then there's also the very local. Um, and so what we, we, within the framework itself, is very modular, but it looks at different aspects of that. So, we you know, um, off the top of my head, we've got wonder, we've got um, movement, we've got uh, nature, we've got... Uh, health, we have, uh, I can't remember all of them, but we have six, six uh, um, sort of main themes and within them they have sub-themes that can easily be defined and can easily be looked at as, as ways to evaluate but also to understand what it means to live in the space. Um, and what, what we think is really strong about the framework itself is that it's very modular, like I said, and it means that you can apply it at a variety of scales, but also you can apply it to focus on specific aspects of communities. So some communities, the movement aspect of, of, of their, their kind of experience of uh, the, the local area might be different to, to the movement aspect of another community. So what we try, we try to do a more tailored approach by speaking to people, and that's like the primary thing. And then we turn that around, we do our evaluation, we kind of compare that against the framework and take that forward. Um, and there's lots of streams that we, we work in within that, but I mean, I can get into that later as, as the conversation goes along. Thank you very much. Natasha, um, you are going to bring that kind of council perspective uh, to the discussion, which is um, so valuable. And I think we often see um, uh, councils as having, again, that back to that kind of long-term custodian idea where it's, it's really becomes uh, about the citizen. So good to hear from you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, my name's Natasha McIntyre-Hall. I work for Portsmouth City Council and I oversee all property development that happens um, with the council, essentially. Um, I, When people hear me talk, they tend to hear me talk about one project in particular, which is Lennox Point, and it really embodies everything that we're talking about today, which is really lovely. Quite often we find that the focus on social value is exactly, um, as was mentioned earlier, the spreadsheet at the beginning that is how many donations are you going to make to this thing? And it's almost sort of a tax on consultants and, um, uh, and contractors. But what we're trying to do is change the way that we develop. I think councils are in a spectacular position to be able to do that because we have legacy. We start every project with legacy because we've got no one to palm it off to. So regardless of who owns it, we're still going to be the ones who have to manage it, who have to deal with the residents that are in there. And it gives us an incredible starting point if we choose to engage with it. And more and more of the time we are. So we're looking, I approach things actually, um, with the idea about ethos. So my personal um, drivers, the things that I get most excited about are really large projects right at inception going up to planning application. That's where I hopefully add my best value. Um, and I approach everything with ethos because I think if you design, 
if you start designing around that central theme in the beginning, it doesn't matter how much value engineering comes in later, you're never going to be able to get rid of that 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 feeling, that soul of that project. And so, again, when I talk about Lennox Point, uh, I'm incredibly proud of it. And what we've done is put the person, not people, not, not nothing generic, we've put a person in the centre of what we've done and we've mapped travel routes around it. For anyone who doesn't know, Lennox, just to give you a scale, Lennox Point is 3,500 residential units 58,000 square metres of marine and maritime employment. It requires significant reclamation um, from the sea, so it's quite a controversial project. But what is spectacular about it is that by putting the person first, we've removed the car and the curb so that it's inclusive and people can get around. And one of our biggest uh, wins on this is that we've stepped all the buildings back so there's no private ownership of the sea giving an extra 2.5 kilometres of walkable, accessible seafront back to the citizens of Portsmouth, which is huge. Um, I'll finish up here because I could talk all day about this um, with a couple of things around uh, flexibility, hugely important. Um, We have to make sure that we are able to move with the times of the project this scale. Anything we put in now, you know, there are there are going to be elements of that that are not correct in 5, 10, 15 years time. And so we have to be able to design in that flexibility to make sure we continue to grow and innovate. That's the right thing to do. I really like that idea of the soul of the project, the ethos of the project and something that is kind of, that cannot be corrupted, that's kind of beyond the spreadsheet or maybe it is embedded in the spreadsheet, but so embedded that you you can't get rid of it. And I can hear that kind of, uh, you know, echoing around the table in different ways. You know, how do you, how do you, you know, set those benchmarks, those, um, whether that's the, the ethos, the achievement, uh, sorry, the soul or the, or the benchmarks, but how do you embed that all the way through with your partners and, and make sure you hold it um, dear. Hazel, over to you and maybe bringing us back into that, um, that conversation around design, you know, and, and its, uh, its contribution to um, social values. So good to hear from you. Yeah, hi, thank you. Um, so I'm Hazel York. I'm an architect and partner at Hawkins Brown, and I've largely worked on um, education and kind of civic and community projects. And I guess my first kind of um, introduction to social value as a, as a concept or a defined concept was filling in procurement forms and, and ticking boxes, which felt terrible. And it felt like a really kind of redacted way to talk about what we do. Um, and I think as, as I've gone on and I've learned more, I've realised that it's given validity and a, a language and to talk about the things we do and the things we do really well and, and the way we contribute that isn't just money. And, and God, have we needed that for, for a long time. Um, and actually, my role now, I really feel um, there's an element of being a socially responsible employer that is a massive part of what we do. We've just become an employee-owned business. So, you know, it's absolutely a driver in what we do um, as a practice. But also, I just feel really excited about it, giving us a language and a toolkit to talk about the kind of non-market aspects of um, places and to talk about the benefits of good design. 
Um, and Michael mentioned some examples earlier, but I think one of the things we've always struggled maybe to articulate um, is about the value of identity in a building. And actually, um, our Here East project on the Olympic Park um, has been a really good example of where creating a strong identity has given people a collective sense of community. And there's massive, massive value in that. You know, the, the number of innovations and connections that have come through that are really, really valuable. And that's come from a, an architectural aesthetic thing that in the past we found difficult to define. So I, I think it's really exciting, but I think um, more sophisticated frameworks where we can quantify this will, will help that to go further. Thank you. May, um, I, do you want to come in now and, and share your perspective on the, on the topic? Cool. So uh, my name is May Maltino. I work for Trilogy, which is a developer in London um, and also has um, properties in Manchester. Um, I'm really fascinated, actually, to be here to talk about this, because when I first thought about social value, I definitely didn't think about design um, per se. Um, and I was thinking that lots of my work, because my work at the moment is really focused on how we can build social capital. So I'm quite new to the property industry. I'm new to the idea that you can buy places, change them for investors, and for investors, the driver is to make money. I'm really interested in how you can build other things, how you can build social capital. And so I guess on your diagram, Michael, in my working life, I'm really on that kind of process end. I'm, I'm maybe a bit like Blossom, looking at projects that we can do in how we run a building that builds something for the wider community and the people in it. But when I, when I listened to you speak at the beginning, I was just thinking about my working, kind of my, my journey into my working life. And a lot of my, a lot of my um, work has been around standing often in, in parks and green spaces and on estates interviewing people because I've had a big consultation background. So I've done a huge amount of listening to people about their places, where they live, what they like and don't like, what they, what they find challenging. And that's, um, that's been a really big learning for me about place and, and how it impacts on people. And I've also, um, I've also done, because um, I've got three children, and when they were little, I set up a little woodland school. And I've spent, therefore, I've spent, I worked in a woodland school. So I spent 10 years watching children play in a wood. And that is really interesting, I think, because it's, it's watching how people inhabit, little people and big people inhabit a place and what seems to work really practically and really not practically you know when we first set up we didn't have any kind of structure we were in a tent um and uh kids got cold and that doesn't work and that, that i know that sounds really basic but for, um that's really about design and what you put in there but then as you if you over engineer that space there's less and less flexibility and less and less space to play and invent um i could talk lots about that i've but I would also started to think about hamsters when you spoke, Michael. So I just thought I'd drop that in there. I've got a 14-year-old who loves hamsters. And uh, I was just thinking about, um, about mammals and how we are really animal-like. And, and, and my, my daughter designs hamster cages, so she'll change them, yeah? So she'll have tunnels and little spaces and big spaces. And it's really obvious, but hamsters don't like small... You know, they like some small spaces, but they don't really like to spend their entire life in a tiny, tiny box. And I kind of feel like we, at a very fundamental level, when we're talking about design, we're talking about making places for us as, 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 part, as mammals, as sort of living things, 
that really want to thrive. And so our question is, uh, you know, as people involved in places, how do we make places that we really love to be in? And uh, we, we do that partly by listening to people, but there's something something really intangible but we, that we all as human beings recognise, don't we, when we're in a space that makes us feel really comfortable, excited, that we want to be there. And I think ultimately that leads me back to a question and then I'll stop talking, um, which is how do we put people and social value as the key driver in our society rather than profit? And whilst profit is important, it's such, well, to some people, um, it's such a reductive, um, it's such a reductive thing to be the key driver in our society. So how do we turn that round um, so that we're not playing a kind of catch-up game around this table of how we can prove the importance of what we're doing? What 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 would happen if we put people and social value right at the beginning, and someone else had to spend a lot of time inventing a metric about improving the improve, you know rises their um, financial value? You know what if what if, we, what if our interests were right at the centre and it wasn't quite... So I'm kind of curious about how we can put those core drivers at the beginning. Um, just, that's... Well, Annabel, I think it's an interesting shift to, to, to you, you know, talking often you guys, I think of uh, civic engineers as working in those um, spaces between the buildings as well as the buildings, um, which, is, which links in nicely to, to May, this idea of us as mammals and in our, in our habitats and in our, um, in our urban, urban habitat and how we make that a place of, of connection, cohesion, but also, uh, you know, linking back to Hani's point about some of those, you know, wonder and nature and these other kind of fundamental things that give us that sense of quality of life and well-being. So over to you. Great. Thank you. So I'm Annabelle Precious. I'm a regional director with Civic Engineers and we're engineers, uh, civil, structural and transport engineers. And we've got a real sort of interest and passion for, for placemaking and how we can really impact people's quality of life and their everyday life through you know, good design of, of the infrastructure and, and the buildings, but also the space between the buildings and, and how that has a you know a huge impact on on what we do. Um, so thinking about you know the street and the space between buildings, actually, you know, how can we raise the aspiration of a place and, and I think through that in, improved quality we can really start to empower people um about you know being able to you know to get themselves from a to b um thinking about the person first not designing our streets for you know for cars which have lots of benefits but also lots of disbenefits in terms of you know our health and air quality um you know we want to move we want to be providing those active travel networks and making it you know good and pleasurable for for people to be able to use um the streets to to travel you know actively and and get themselves there under their own steam and i thought it was really interesting maybe what what you mentioned about you know working with children because that's something that we always try and do really understand the places that we're working in so that we can make sure that we're you know collaboratively working with everybody to get that quality of place right Um, and i'm really passionate about providing the right kind of infrastructure to to help people safely get from from A to B. You know, I've got two children. They you know they both love riding their bikes, and it's mm-hmm. when you learn to ride a bike, it feels like magic, and you know it's very freeing. Can you know your aspirations are are great, and then you know the way that our streets are designed is that they're not designed to accommodate safe, active travel in in lots of locations, and that really 
disempowers people and think, oh, actually, I think I can't do it. So it's, we're all about raising that aspiration, providing the, you know, the street space that's that place where people can feel safe and feel empowered and get themselves from from A to B. Um, yeah, through good you know, design of, of infrastructure and, and working collaboratively to to improve that. So we've got lots of examples of of projects that we've worked on where we look at repurposing that space between the buildings within the street, really giving people, you know, putting people at the top of that user hierarchy. Um, there's a, our scheme in, in Brighton, New Street. There's there's lots more pedestrian space. Um, you know, pedestrian traffic is increased by you know almost two hundred percent. Um, that means that people want to stay in the space. That has the you know the longer term impact of you know the the economy and the local economy and keeping people in the local spaces to spend the money, creating the jobs. You know, really raising aspiration um, and in bringing it back to social value in terms of how that can increase our sort of physical and, and mental health as well um, in those in those places. And, you know, really raising people's self-esteem, um, yeah, to improve aspiration through placemaking. And I think that's a really tangible way, you know, like the ramp at the library and this idea of, you know, a pleasurable experience when you're going to take your transport or you're going to go and do some kind of daily task, this value of making it, easier and nice and choosing to walk or choosing to use an active mode of transport because it is more pleasurable, easier, safer and feels comfortable doing so. And that that role of design being embedded, you know, into it. I think one thing that I'm hearing a lot is, you know, how do how do we make it happen? How do we um, embed that from the first principle of the project and you know, there, we, we've talked a little bit or touched a little bit on uh, methodologies to value it, which often um, rely on uh, translating it into a monetary number, a contribution and monetary. Is that the right way to do it? Does that make it more fundamental on the spreadsheet? Does that make it real? Or is it, you know, as May suggested, you know, do, does it have to be about money? Is there a way to kind of make that the prime metric and the money has to work around that you know or, or does social value have to plug into a financial a financialized system but I think one of the things that might be nice to to come down to um, you know money aside but some of you might touch on that topic is these strategies for embedding it what are the strategies for um, making sure that that contribution to social value, which, you know, is created at the outset of the project, uh, follows through to the end and then creates that feedback loop um, and the design relationship to that as well. So how do we embed um, social value from first principles. So, uh, Michael, also you might want to respond because you went first. So you've just heard a whole bunch of words around the table. So I think, um, you know, it, are you surprised by what you're hearing? Um, it does, has it raised different questions for you? Uh, I, don't, I, I think it gives a, a, <clears throat> I think it's, a um, it's a general attitude. We know that design and social value is important. I think that goes without saying. Now, I when I started that process and I saw the sort of um, um, ways to monetize social value or to quantify it, I was a bit, meh, is that really it? Um, but I, um, I, in the end, I would say yes, that's good. And I, 
don't often venture into neoliberal um, theories, but money is a very, very good form to compress information and to convey information. And it's a very easy to, to way to communicate, especially in, in, in the society we are. And we got to accept that. And um, so it's one way to put it. And I think it's okay. So what I... But what I do think is we um, 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 the, the the way to get to this monetization point should be further developed because at the moment we have those tools and they're developing and they're good, but uh, it could be more sophisticated. So yes, I think uh, it's a very pragmatic way of communicating value, and um, and it's 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 a given. That's how we work as a society, even if it's just a benchmark. Um, but the sort of the complexity to to come there, sort of there, there's a few chains missing. So, if, for example, like put a different, say, um, um, even public realm, you put a few benches in where rough sleepers can sleep. So now, that's actually an improvement. I know it's a debated thing, but it's an improvement for a certain group of people. Now, there needs to be a, a, an easy way to to calculate this into something, and that's sometimes where it is missing. That we take only the obvious routes to monetize things. And I think the effort is that, yes, we accept money. Now let's put every effort in to find, to even try to find the most complex problems and sort of boil them down because that makes it usable in the end. And I think I'd be pragmatic about that. Yeah, I think it's a good way. And do you see that as a way to kind of enshrine it? Because if you were embedding that as a social value, as a number on the spreadsheet, does that, elim does that prevent it from being eliminated as a value engineering exercise? Can it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a number, it's easier memorizer. You can, can keep it in the project and it's easy to, moni to monitor. And it's also a, um, um, a way to discuss things, right? It's, um, as I said, money is not, not a value, it's a means of communication. I mean, uh, every every market uh, economist knows that is money is not like the coin. Money is an, is, a, is, a, is a vehicle of information, and that's important. I, I appreciate that. I think that one of the things, as as is the case with our um, sort of our take on on our, our own version of looking at social value through our framework, uh, we think that we have a we have a good image, right? By looking at the numbers, it, it's it's a very good way to start to understand it. But I think it's missing that qualitative edge, and I think that what what could really help build us a better picture of what's going on or understand a better picture of what's going on is, is to just kind of look at centering the people who are really at the heart of what we're, what we're building and what we're putting together, right? Whether that's infrastructure, public space, housing, whatever it is that's being put in, in kind of a, in a built environment needs to consider the people at, at, at the heart of that. And sometimes it's really hard to just put people into, into numbers. Um, so I think that the numbers are definitely a good way to, to understand it. But I think embedding it can also come in the form of understanding there's, it's, it's more of a conversation that, that needs to be had. And one of the challenges that we're having to think about is for some of the sites that we're looking at sort of evaluating, there's no existing community. You know, these are these are like entirely new developments. And that's one of the challenges that we're trying to understand. How do you how do you even I mean, just to throw a question to the fold here, but like how do you think about social value in a context where um, there's no people? Uh, you, can, you can start to think a little bit about about maybe um, environmental aspects, which obviously is, is quite important, but then how does that fit into your so frame, framework of understanding your social value? And how does that fit into the numbers that you're looking at? I'm going to ping to you on that, Natasha, because you're working on a site where there are relatively few people or no people at all. So um, how do you kind of keep that concept of social value? What is social value, especially in that, in that context where there are adjacent communities, but actually, you know, to, who, to whom is the value being delivered and how do you measure that in, that, in a, a completely new area? 
Uh, well, in a way, it's easier when there are no people. In a way, it's much more difficult when there are no uh, no people. Uh, there's no one to get on side, so there's no one to take your side. There's no one to help uh, protect that vision. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, however, it has allowed us a completely blank canvas to be able to approach things. There is no infrastructure for us to protect. There are no spaces that people particularly love that we have to work to protect. So in that aspect, it's been, um, it's been really exciting to be able to reconsider the way that people live their lives and whether or not we can bring a different perspective to that to allow people to change the way that people live their lives. We talk about the fact that it's possible now to go shopping and try and go plastic free or try and shop organic, but it's very, very difficult to change the way that you live your life. And that's really how people are getting excited about what we're doing. The idea that back in the 60s, not knocking any of this at all. I understand why they did it, but it was designed for physical safety of the normal person. And now we understand that there is no such thing as a normal person. Everyone has their their, their own baggage, their own experiences that they bring to something, whether or not that's physical carrying the shopping or whether that's emotional and something's happened that, you know, something needs to be protected. So now we design for that. In terms of, you said about how do we embed these strategies, belligerence, I think, is a key <laughs> key factor, um, thick skin, um, and a doggedness, doggedness even about the fact that what you're doing is right. I, the reason I moved into public sector from private sector is because I care deeply about what we are going to produce and the fact that we can do so much better but in defense of the property development and construction industry, they're expected to pay for everything. And the funding sources are massively out of date and insufficient to allow for innovation. And it's expected that everyone will pick up these costs. Um, and at the last minute, the government will offer £3.50 for somebody who can prove that they're going to build something that worked three years ago into their scheme. And then you have to adjust things in order to be grateful for that £3.50. And it's all the wrong way around. And councils have such a hard job because our funding is being cut just to run the councils. But development in councils was originally set up to make sure that there was income to prop up the councils to run the frontline services. And so we're now being split all over the place. And we are trying so hard to do the right thing, but there are so many obstacles piled against us. In terms of the stuff that we're doing, and particularly I will focus on Lennox Point, but we do have other projects. Um, we... As I said, we embedded it as an ethos. We've talked about it right from the very beginning. We've got excited about people excited about what we're going to do. On our website, we've also got what's important to us and how we're going to measure it. So healthy, sustainable communities is one of them. How we're going to measure it, one of the measurables within that is reduced GP visits. Now, I bring up that one because I think it's hugely important to demonstrate health. And there will be a financial implication if we're successful in that, which we believe we will be. But that financial success will not be linked to the development. That will be a financial success that the NHS should benefit from, which is terrific. But it won't benefit the council and it won't benefit the developer. And so how do you then value it with meaning? And I think the question I'm going to leave this on is 
we have real trouble with agents and valuations being able to project into the future what these things are worth. And when they do it, they're accused of gentrification. <laughs> and so they're stuck in a really... So how do we benefit from the values that we are putting in place? Blossom, I'm going to thro throw you that one. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm sure that uh, you know at Pablo Harga, you guys have discussions around uh, design. It's linked to gentrification, about the financialization of of that value, and you've also got that long term view. So, um, so I, but you know, uh, not to make you unfairly have to solve um, Natasha's question, not at all. But perhaps building on that understanding of um, of value, how we value, how we embed, and the kind of pitfalls and challenges around that, a frank discussion around the pitfalls and challenges. Um, absolutely. I, I'm not sure I can solve that, that dilemma in any meaningful way. Um, but, but I think it's about, there's something I was thinking about, which is around, and it, it's, it's less applicable to new, new communities, I think, um, but something about unlocking the existing value and understanding what's already embedded in the place and, and that it doesn't necessarily have to cost us an awful lot of money if we take the right approach to that to, um, to really look at where the value is. So is that in our physical assets? Are there spaces that we can unlock as part of wider processes that can help us, certainly in the meanwhile term, but also looking to, towards permanency in the new development that we can utilize. We have a project at the moment where uh, we've worked with uh, residents around, uh, it's a Bangladeshi tradition called um, Kanta, which is around uh, people recycling old textiles and fabrics and residents brought in swatches of fabric and patterns. And now there's a whole street which is um, painted in those patterns and colors. Come have a look. Um, but importantly within that, so lots of people come and look and say, this is the most colorful street in London. Um, but what they're not realising is that there's a whole business support programme going on with the retailers in that street, existing ones, but also introduction of new offers um, on a meanwhile basis, which is around um, developing the value in those businesses, recognising their existing value, working out that actually that's that's a really authentic street and a really authentic set of local businesses who could be the businesses in the new high street as that emerges. It's that local business pipeline that could um, form part of the new high street when it's developed. Now, the, the pitfall is everyone loves the street and, of course, it's going to come down and be replaced by something else, but people love it because it's been created in that very beautiful way. So there's a, a challenge then in how that physicality changes. But really, that's a very long-term strategy that says if you build um, local business now and you build capacity in those local businesses now to be able to move into that new market in that new world, then um, that's got to be a helpful thing in terms of that continuity, that sense of um, the place not feeling like uh, the physical change changes the identity of the place entirely. So for existing residents, that's really important, but also the ability to capitalise on on new markets so there's something really about unlocking that recognizing that value and um 
looking at how that can be supported and platforms created for it to to thrive and I think you can apply that in lots of different ways so we're working with a local community group around open spaces and that's partly about co-design of those spaces with residents um, but it's beyond that so the cha our challenge to that community group now is about well who maintains those open spaces who maintains those parks that green corridor that uh, active travel infrastructure um, where's the role in that is there an expectation that that's an authority doing it or Poplar Harker doing it um, or is there a role then is there job creation opportunity in um, in that community group having led that co-design process really uh, embedding in the long term and, and being uh, there was a phrase on Tuesday the, the place keepers um, so thinking through that kind of much longer term role for that value um, I think there's a really similar thing in um, I, I did, someone mentioned identity earlier. So there's something about unlocking the place identity as it is and then reimagining how that works for the future. So I think of um, Poplar Works, which is a fashion and creative hub that we've developed from refurbishing garages. And really that's been about, you know, 250 years of fashion in the East End, but also resonant stories now. So residents telling us, you know, I've just graduated and from Central St Martins, I need some affordable workspace. But it's also older women who've said, you know, as a machinist all my life, I'd love to share those skills. And and so you, that that sense of recognising that, and that's really intangible, that heritage value. But how do we take that and shape that in a way that works for the future place and helps to set the tone and the identity for the future place? So So unlocking existing assets, I think, is a really important thing and something that we perhaps don't focus on quite so much. But I'm hearing lots of interesting themes there around co-design and participation of the community, but also design working in tandem with deeper interventions like that community and business support. And then this idea that's emerged in a couple of the comments we've made around confidence and pride in place, which perhaps come from that care and attention and the incorporation of you know, heritage and participation and co-design with the idea of looking around your environment and seeing those tangible improvements uh, and feeling part of them, uh, which seems like uh, that really dovetails with this idea of um, uh, making tangible the value of those design interventions, but participation being really key to that as well. Um, I, I'm going to um, come back to you, uh, Matt, now, um, it, you know, it, from what you're hearing around the table, but I thought your point about how to kind of work with those all the way through to your contractors, we haven't quite um, we haven't quite grappled with that yet. So, um, you know, does this monetar the monetization of social value help with that if it's on, you know, the spreadsheet? Is it an ethos thing? Is it about the right partners? Um, and how, and how, you know, and is it about processes, processes of participation or co-design or uh, apprenticeships or, you know, is it a, a, about kind of embedding that in the process of, of procurement? So over to you. Thanks. Um, okay. Well, I guess it sort of starts right, right at the very beginning um, in terms of setting the the, the project brief. Um, you know, we refer to sort of our three pillars of empowering communities, protecting the planet, stimulating economies. Those are sort of the, the, the happy three core pillars. Um, you could jump a step forward or sort of back 
from that to one one step further back, which would also relate to your recruitment. So who who are the people that are the very core of the business that are going to be delivering on those three core pillars? Uh, that would later then lead into who are you going to partner with? Because I, I think people really are absolutely at the core of this process. Um, if you don't have the right people that aren't minded to consider social value at each of the steps along the way, you're really not going to deliver on any of these promises. Yeah, can I just jump in and say that that's been a really key thing that I've been thinking as we've been talking? Because mm. I thought it was really interesting what you said, Natasha, about putting ethos at the heart of it. And then I was thinking, well, how do you get ethos? You know, how do you form ethos? And then I was thinking, well, you know, just it's, it's, it's lots about who you choose to be in there and having a very diverse set of different people who are helping to make those decisions. It, so it's great it needs to, to be, say that. It needs to be yeah. partly woven into the DNA of the people that yeah. you're, you're dealing with. Um, to, to, to rattle through a, a particular example in East London, um, and I'll, I'll whiz through the sort of the development cycle of this, this particular site to just give some examples of sort of how we've tried to tie back to those pillars. Um, it's a, a, a large former retail shed, unoccupied when we, when we acquired it, um, immediately found a, a meanwhile user in space generators. Space generators um, are promoting and raising awareness around climate change. They hold these regular events. At, at that point in time, we were right in the middle of lockdown. So there wasn't a great deal that, that could be done on that site. However, they did their best with their online, online um, workshops, etc. We also, at that point, had to set up our own sort of uh, consultation platform uh, in order to be able to reach out to the community while we were working up our design and, and going through the consultation process. And that was a really interesting one. Um, I think a lot of uh, developers have experienced the, the benefits of digital consultation over the, the, um, the, the lockdown period because it's so accessible. Yeah, I think a lot of people at the table here will probably recognise that, that often the people that turn up at a consultation and really start to engage with you if you're only doing that very sort of we're setting up some sort of consultation please pop in if you're only doing that you're only going to meet a certain type of person with a, a digital consultation you do actually access a much wider part of the, the community uh, that helped us and I, I heard the word co-design uh, earlier on uh, that helped us go as far as we possibly could down the road toward co-design uh, I'm, I'm here representing a developer clearly there are commercial realities co-design does become problematic at a certain point but I do think it's important to consider that I do think it's very important to work with people to incorporate the things that are missing or needed within that community can you um, drill into that when does it become problematic or why well if you're a residential developer proposing to build residential property and the, the, the fundamental requirement from the local community is not what you do as a core business, mm. that's going to be fundamentally problematic. Um, desire for um, low density residential property uh, as opposed to high density residential properties is not an unfamiliar one. It was interesting if, I mean, I, I'm sure from procurement, you know, you have to hit certain social value mm -hmm. targets. Now, you typically do this with, let's say, um, skills or so, these kind of things. Now, if, if you were to have a relatively high social value connected to, let's say, co-design. So if you say, okay, I do a co-design process, that gets with you, gets, and that is a large monetary value attached to it, which is calculated somehow, and that gets rid of all the other social value requirements. And, but that would mean you have to sort of sign up to that process and implement it, but it makes in some way the process easier because you don't have to 
run all your other social values on, would you do this? Is that something that is attractive? Or? I, I think it's, it's certainly something that's interesting to sort of explore a little further. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to run the numbers on these things, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was just going to continue a little further into, um, we've talked a little bit, weaving the, the concept into how, how do you implement this? How, how do you carry it all the way through? And I guess really the, the, the key part for, for me is how, how do you go from concept to design? Once it's designed, it's it's captured. You know, for for, for us, really, we we are un, unlikely to to roll back on uh, design commitments at that stage. You know, if you have a building that has incorporated, as this project uh, example has incorporated this um, co-working nursery space. You know, that that was a really important thing through through the lockdown. Actually, what am I going to do with my kids? Um, well. This example came up as a, as a big um, requirement at the local community, somewhere to work and have somebody look after your kids. We, we, we partnered with an organisation that are due to come in in a couple of years' time once the, the, the site's been constructed, uh, and that will be an asset to that community. Um, for me, once it's translated from concept to design, it will get implemented, provided you can incorporate it into the procurement process. And really that's down to uh, the fun and games of writing your employer's requirements and, and things like that. But I did actually have a, a quantity spare say to me the other day, uh, and where are we setting out our social value commitments in the, this set of ERs? And I thought that was amazing that the language has permeated all the way through to a quantity spare. Oh, quantity spare. Excellent. Can you give me the address? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to add to the co-design conversation. We have uh, another scheme which is in co-design and in order for co-design to work you need longevity you need a good relationship because you need to be able to have challenging um, conversations with people that's the problem that we have when we do one-off consultation is people can come in and they can say whatever they want completely off the wall ideas that you know will never work but you can't explain that to someone in a short period of time so what co-design does beautifully I think is it allows you to have a conversation with someone when they come up with an off-the-wall idea. Instead of saying, we can't possibly do that, that's ridiculous, we then say, okay, well, if we were to do that, you would lose X, Y, and Z, or you, we wouldn't be able to do this. So then it becomes a conversation of, would you rather this or that? But it takes time. And I have to say, doing this online has been really helpful for us because we've got a diverse group of people that we can bring in on zoom calls we can give them alternate times they have a chance to be heard and really feel like they're making a difference and they are making a difference um, but we get to talk about challenging things so our height was always going to be a difficult one for us um, and we had to get, go back and actually talk to them about the realities of what we could afford to do in order to make the changes that they wanted to their community. And the other one was parking. And where traditionally we try and remove as much parking and as much car movement as we can from these areas when we're regenerating them, this was an area where people had lots of vans and work vehicles and they were concerned about parking them further away in case they got broken into and then that's a livelihood that goes up in smoke. So we were able to have some really interesting conversations. But again, I'm saying this as the council, we can afford to take our time. We can afford to invest time in communities because we're there for the long term. It's much more difficult for people who have got financial constraints that they have to satisfy quick, quickly. Um, and I hope that councils in the future particularly are more able to assist developers get to know an area. One last thing on this, we're looking at, at the opportunity at the moment to do more generalised 
co-design workshops because one of the things we're aware of at the moment is by doing local co-design, we may be making an area less accessible for a group of people who live on the edge of it. So, for example, in Portsmouth, we have a large Bangladeshi population. But right now in the area that we're looking at, it's not somewhere that they particularly live. And so should we be consulting with them in a separate group to see whether or not there are ideas from that that could be brought into other designs where they're not perhaps as populous um, to make sure that they are welcome and they have more ability to choose different places to live. So we're looking into that again. But again, that's expensive and timely. And it's something that I think only councils can lead on and I'll bang on again about funding later. <laughs> hey, Hazel, it might be good to bring you in at this point because I think time and uh, you know time pressures in that design process and the kind of idea of um, the depth of engagement. Uh, I think architects are very used to um, working with different stakeholders in a project and trying to negotiate these complex uh, levels of need. Um, maybe less so uh, from a co-design, often taking those away and then coming back. Are you seeing a, a shift through social value in the way you design and the way you design with and for um, different stakeholders? Um, I think so. I think it's giving, um, it, it's strengthening partnerships with clients and developers that are allowing more time and effort to be put into those things and everybody seeing the value of it. And I was going to pick up on something Blossom said about the more time, well, the time and effort can often lead to much more affordable solutions. Um, we've got an example for um, a housing scheme in Battersea, um, Burridge Gardens with Peabody. And the more time we spent with the community there, we, we realised that actually really what mattered was that they... Uh, the vulnerable people stayed together and that you could do that really, really simply by having them all move in on the same day and they could celebrate that and it strengthened their community. So there are really, really simple things that you can embed that don't have to be expensive that if you spend a bit of time and understand, you can see through. I think it then comes to Matt's point, um, which is about the procurement process because the... Uh, the, the kind of um, detail of understanding that that's important mustn't get lost as the, it moves into the realm of the contractor. You know, that, um, and people do move on projects. I mean, we were talking earlier, these developments take a long time. You can't rely on the same people being there in the client body, in the consultant team at the end. And so therefore you do need to have a way of transferring what is important at a detail level from the beginning of a project to an end to the end and i think ethos is very good but you do need targets potentially or metrics to make sure it gets transferred across that time scale and and i'm as sort of skeptical or as sad about things being um, brought down to money but i think figures and targets give um, something that people you can be held account to as the people involved in the project change and i think that that is important. I think it's also as simple as sort of um, condensing and summarising the work and effort that has gone in in the front end. I mean, it's it's not that unusual for a lot of these projects that the, the construction bit is 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 sometimes the shortest bit, <laughs> which seems crazy when you're you know say you've got a development of five hundred and fifty odd homes that might be 
you know, 24-ish, 26, 28 months. But actually, you, you may have spent six to 12 months in acquisition. You may have spent six to 12 months in design. There's six months in planning. There's three, four months in um, your Section 106 negotiations. There's been so much that's learned over that period about the, the, the community, the, the neighborhood, the stakeholders, the commitments that have been made over that period. All of that needs to be condensed and communicated to the contractor. You, you, you have to partner with the right contractor, um, first and foremost, but you've also got to communicate all that learning because let's say somebody moved on at that point from that organization, all of that learning is lost. Uh, and it needs to be quite simple and clear what, what has been committed to and uh, how that's supposed to be brought forward throughout the, the construction process. May, I want to bring you in because we've talked about, you know, you brought us to the forest and to the tent uh, and, and, and this idea that, you know, you can, you know, you can start with very makeshift affordable solutions, but then you have to maybe um, understand what's important within that. But I think, it, I don't know, it'd be nice to bring you in again to discuss this idea of beyond monetary value, um, you know, af affordable solutions come up with through, through co-design and time and effort and all of these different um, factors and priorities. So what I think makes a difference to communities resources and whether that's really great physical resources or people, it's, it comes down to resources. So what I like, I've drawn a little picture of like a person in the middle and there's, that, that person's kind of got a listening and a kind of doing on either side. So there's something, what I notice is you know, that I come culturally to, uh, from a very different background to the to Trilogy, where, um, but there's a lot of excitement about the, the difference that I bring. And, but the choice of Trilogy to employ someone from quite a different background is in itself interesting. And that, that means that I can make diff, tiny changes. They don't necessarily, like Boston says, they don't, def, des, they don't definitely need to cost a lot. But I bring a, a kind of different lived experience, um, and I can also bring other people in with different lived experiences. So, so really, practically, for example, um, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work uh, around how to make places, um, how to build people to sort of spend time in places, and what people tell me um, they really need is places to play as well. So on on both our both our projects, the Great Northern in Manchester and at um, Republic in London, we've built a giant sandpit. And a really, I've done a lot of work in nursery schools where sandpits are tiny and children are just sort of fiddling around at the edge. What you need is a sandpit that feels like a beach, and you need then places for people to. Um, to sit by them and get into them. There's a huge amount of fear around sandpits. They're actually one of the most successful natural play things you can put in a space. You, um, but if you can put in the resources to keep that sandpit clean and you can put in the resources to give people places to sit by them, they become a magnet for um, people using a place and then those people bring in other people. They make it a much safer place to be. To, to be. And those sandpits are really, compared to the kind of overall cost of these projects, those sandpits are kind of pennies really. Um, and in fact, we can, uh, we've had to build a sandpit in an amphitheatre where we've had to have a lovely community project where people are literally bucketing in 40 tonnes of sand together, bucket by bucket. So I love that sense where you can build, where people are going to see it in Poplar Harker, where you, people are engaged in the actual physicality of that design as well and building it. Um, but I think it's the little choices we make, the choices um, we we give um, free space to certain community groups, you know, um, which then generates, say, we've got a really fantastic project called the Tati Project um, at Republic. It's a, a work with Bangladeshi women. It, it, 
I have to say it costs us as asset managers very little to give them space. And what they do with that space is really amazing. We're now trying to work, I'm now trying to work to get the Tati Project a kitchen, which they need to help. Um, and um, yeah, I just feel like there's a sort of, um, a, you can get into a kind of positive set of cycles as, as you as you give more, as you give resources that other people build more on, that build more on. Um, so again, we, we I really feel like, for example, we have City Gateway based at Republic and we've trained to do our consultation just as we were coming out of lockdown. Um, I was really missing, I love that the opportunities presented by digital consultation, but I've done a huge amount of going out to communities and I was really missing that. So we trained um, 15 young people from City Gateway who, um, in how to be community researchers. We went on to employ five of them as freelance community researchers for us. And we learned masses about the conversations we had from local people by that experience. But we've also, we also then feel really invested in those five young people and what happens next to them. And we're now looking at building apprenticeships with them. So there's something about companies choosing to put people, I think, that's in those places, companies or local authorities choosing to invest in people who can who can do both that listening and that action that that doing and giving budgets to make that happen. And in the scale of the projects we're talking about, it's small, but it can then kind of feed back into design. Sorry, you're nodding. Yeah. <laughs> what I were you to, saying? What were you thinking, Annabelle? Well, I, yes, I, I want to pass to you, Annabelle, and, and I think that it's interesting to again expand on that conversation of co-design and how your methods of of practice might be changing because we do think about the role of um, designers and engineers as being brief-led uh, as opposed to people-led. Um, and, and I think, yeah, go over to you. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really interesting. And I think it's it's all about people, isn't it? And, and being able to communicate and everybody's got different experiences and, you know, can bring <clears throat> something different to the table. And in terms of design, I think it's about diversifying you know, the, the types of professionals and, you know, the, the backgrounds of, of professionals so that we've got that great, you know, diversity and we can really then start to embed that into design and then working with the people, you know, that use the space. Um, we've talked a lot about, you know, residential development and what people need to to live lives. So it's, yeah, it's bringing in that diversification, I think, from, you know, from culturally, um, as well as, you know, from an age perspective as well, talking about, you know, yeah. Age of different people using spaces and, and buildings. We, we had this really interesting challenge at our place. Um, working with these young city gateway people from very diverse backgrounds. Um, and we have a lovely water garden at Republic, which is quite wild. It's got reeds. It's got a lot of insect life. Um, and we, uh, some of them really don't like it. For them, it feels messy. Um, it feels unkempt. It feels potentially dirty. Whereas I'm thinking, oh, it's such a lovely natural world, isn't it beautiful? And uh, we watched a really, I don't know if any of you've listened to it, but there's a very interesting um, woman who's done a PhD on whether parks can be racist. Have you listened to that? Yeah. Really interesting about our kind of, the, the kind of cultural, um, the, 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 the fact that we have different aesthetics culturally and uh, that, that what I see as a wild and beautiful kind of water garden somebody else sees as something that no one's taken much care of. Mm -hmm. I find that really interesting. Yeah, it's the work of Dr. Bridget Snaith. It's on our YouTube channel if anyone wants to um, watch it where she uh, studies the Olympic Park and different attitudes towards wild gardens which are associated with 
uh, rats for some communities <laughs> with kind of, you know, wild as being something that suggests an unsafe place, an unkept place, an unloved place. So understanding those different perspectives. Honey, I know you wanted to jump um, in, so I um, over to you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think some of the conversation, I think the direction the conversation is heading in is quite an exciting one. I think um, picking up on what May has been saying, there is there seems to be, um, at least from my own perspective and my experiences, there seems to be more interest in how do we, like obviously the social value framework is something that in, in its own different capacities has been emerging in different ways. But I think it's the, the, the general um, shift towards considering what it means to, have, to add social value, what it means to bring more va value itself as, 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 a, as a thing to developments, to projects, infrastructure, or otherwise, is is, is really exciting. You know, it, it means that we are not only re, we're redefining the word value as a, as, a, as a as a term itself, thinking more about long term, thinking more more about future and longevity, um, and I think that that's a that's a good place to start. Um, but I think it's it's only kind of like half half the half the the journey really. And it, it's it's sort of thinking about. I, I think it, it it's important to try and understand what it means to to deliver these kind of things. So is, is it just, and one of the things that we, we have come up in some of the conversations we've been having with residents all over is is the idea of, okay, so we have worked with, we have bought this this place and we moved into it and you know we've now moved in, but that's it, there's no support, there's nothing like that. We just have to figure it out ourselves. And I think that sh changing that relationship between those who deliver either services, or, well, um, infrastructure, uh, housing, um, you know, those kind of things, changing that relationship into a consistent and long-term one that goes beyond just handing over the keys is really essential in like understanding, okay, we now know how do we fit um, our understanding of social value within that framework of, of, of service delivery, of, of, of product delivery, and, and that kind of timeline that we work to. Um, and so, so I think it's, it's to a certain degree, without trying to make it too tangential, but I think it's also about considering what, what does value mean today? In the context of, of construction, context of, of like the built environment, because it's it's there's also elements of like okay, how do we safeguard communities that exist in this space? How do we provide? And that's something that obviously Poplar Harker have been working on. But like, how do you do that um, in a way that is meaningful, that also empowers the community, but also allows you to be able to like you know deliver housing that you need to deliver to be able to make your your kind of business still work? Um, and it's a tricky challenge. But I think that things like this, things like um, conversations around social value, are really important to try and get on the same page and try to benchmark things so it's. There's some level of consistency, but it's always and like it's already been reflected in the conversation. It's always about centering the people who you're either delivering these services to, or the people who are around those services that will be impacted the most by the services that you're delivering to. Always centering them in 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 throughout the love all stages of the project, um, and making sure that there is legacy and longevity as as like as like a, a standard thing that you need to consider. Um, so yeah, that's that's the thing that I think is really important. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's been touched on more than a couple of times, but it, I think stewardship is just absolutely crucial and understanding when we're designing something about who's going to be able to run it and who's going to look after it. Uh, speaking as a council, it's sometimes disheartening how many, particularly members of the public, assume that we get beaten all the time for not having done something and it's always the council's fault that something's gone wrong in the city. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. So even measures at the moment, like, um, you know, rewilding um, green areas, 
how is that going to be ma maintained and how is it going to be looked after? And is there support for councils to be able to do this? Because ultimately, most of it's going to come back to councils. There are very few that stay managed solutions forever and ever. Um, and this is why I'm talking slowly, because councils are one thing, the political environment that they operate in is something really different. And I wouldn't want to be a councillor at all. Their job is really, really hard. And what we have to balance is the fact that we have officers thinking about long-term and thinking about legacy, and we have politicians who are thinking about how to get the next vote. And certainly in Portsmouth, and I know in many, many other local areas, we have votes every year, and then the fourth year is fallow. And we have no majority, which means every year we could end up with a different administration. So they're fighting over car parking and dog poo, and we're trying to improve the city over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And that disconnect is hugely damaging for the state of that overall macro place. And you see it repeated over and over again in the UK. Um, and I'm sure further afield than that. But there you go. Yeah, that, that is my, my biggest gripe, I think, with trying to do the right thing for place. Michael, I'm going to bring it back to you because it is unfortunately time for us to to wrap all of these ideas in. I mean, I'm hearing about that importance of placekeeping, of maintenance, of infrastructure, of stewardship. I'm hearing the importance of enshrining those values from the first principle all the way through to the many deliveries and beyond. How do you get those positive feedback loops? And to Natasha's point, how do you get that long-term view um, to, to be kind of sustained in a volatile political environment, in a volatile funding environment, in, um, in kind of, uh, without it being thrown into, into um, chaos, uncertainty, or um, having funding cut or pulled, you know, that kind of um, idea that many of these are seen as nice to haves. How do you embed them so that they are, uh, you know, at the core and essential and, um, and, undissolved um, as it goes through sometimes 5, 10 or, or 15 year um, project cycles. So, um, so maybe coming right back to you because we started with you um, to kind of talk about what you're hearing, uh, how it fits with your work so far and, um, and where we go from here. Right, I think there's one thing uh, I just take away is like we talked a lot about sort of looking, hearing of what people say, people-centered design, and I'm sure this is at the heart of social value. And then you see all the problems, how to embed it and so forth. And I think I wanted to make two remarks. Is that I think the social value discussion, also how the way we start, the way is, is a good way to itemize um, um, problems. And to, when you itemize problems, you can talk about them more targeted and then especially in that kind of discussion so what do we do is a, is a good way to say okay yes um, this is the issue but we target this specific problem that will have this and this consequence so it's a good way to discuss and if the itemizing means you put a price tag to it fine um, I think that's good but I want to make also as a final point to sort of illustrate this um, this, uh, this, this the, the problematic of the people-centered approach 
And that is a sort of problem we always will hit in the social values if we talk about the thorny subject of density. And uh, that's always problematic. And we say, okay, we listen to people. So if you go to a council estate and listen to them, they will always say, we want low density when in the regeneration. And then they say, well, yeah, we listen to you guys. Um, <clears throat> Um, but then we still don't do the low density and, um, and for some understandable reasons because there's an economic model behind it. And that is the, the, the basic tension we have. We have uh, and social value can communicate with this and I, I think the architect has a role in that. And now let's take the density model uh, is to say, okay, are we um, have a higher density. We know from research that higher densities do does have social problems. So in the long run, there will be issues with that high density, if not mitigated. So if you have a way to communicate this, to put a value to it, let's say the GP, um, sort of the GP visits, if you have high density schemes, they have higher, higher <coughs> GP visits. I don't know whether there's any research um, sort of supporting this, but that type of thing. But we actually don't have, and that's again critique, if you don't have, actually don't know social value of density or social damage of density, we don't know this, it would be good to have, because then that would lead a very informed information which not only sort of um, puts the sort of the opinion of the local community and the economic value, so the social value in between and the one who can mitigate this is maybe designed because we can say, right, we do a high density, but if you give us extra budget budget or you know, extra sort of scope to mitigate this, maybe put a few more cores in or any sort of design move to mediate with this and we can express this and we have social value as a platform to to, to negotiate those two elements, then we are further. But otherwise we always say, okay, we want low density, high density, and then you have the clash and say, well, it doesn't work. I think that's a good way to itemize problems, discuss them properly, also to evaluate them, and the design can sort of be part of the mix. Yeah, and I think it's a critical discussion we've been through and are continuing in this pandemic, and public health and social value are something that are in entirely interlinked. And I think, um, I think it's interesting to think about how we can bring those public health professionals back into the heart of planning, because that is where public health, you know, and planning really have a shared birth <laughs> in, 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 in the kind of origins of town planning and in master planning. And I think they can really, those professionals can really help us to, to consider the financial value. We talked about GP visits and, you know, the financialization of, of social value and helping with that itemization and the cost of public health, which is something that I think we're having an awakening about now, that kind of greater cost of, of air pollution or access to nature. Um, and, you know, bringing us back to the kind of, uh, we, are, we are mammals and our, our environment influences us. And that awakening in the public is probably um, going to help to support this discussion further. But that just leaves me to thank you all very much for your amazing contributions today. I think this is um, a, an, an opening chapter, um, and I think it's it's been really enlightening to hear all of your perspectives from slightly different angles. Um, and I hope we can kind of synergize that, and I hope the listener is able to kind of um, start to spark some rich thinking. I think there's another full conversation we can have about which metrics 
we like the best <laughs> and which ones we're missing and where we need to, to drill down and really understand that value. But um, it, it's been really great speaking to you all today and thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.